you also. Happy 4th of July. We're so exuberant. I love it. Happy 4th of July. Hopefully you've got uh, great plans to get outside and stay hydrated. It's going to be like 99 degrees today. That is far too hot, but winter's coming, so I'm not even going to complain because it'll be here too fast. Um, I want to begin this morning uh, by talking about a man named uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton. And Shackleton was a man who loved adventure. He had been on two Antarctic expeditions, and in fact, on one of those expeditions, had come to within 97 nautical miles of the South Pole. He was the closest person in history at the time to do so. And so he had set his sights uh, on becoming the first man to reach the South Pole. The problem was, a couple years later, a Norwegian named uh, Amundsen beat him to that goal. And so Shackleton was kind of depressed and dejected because he was looking for that thing that would give him power and wealth and fame. And he thought, if I'm this historic uh, explorer who makes it to the South Pole first, my name will be written down in the history books. Well, with being the first to the South Pole off the table, he came up with another idea that he would be the first person ever to travel across the entire width of Antarctica. So in 1914, Ernest Shackleton set sail off the coast of Argentina, headed for uh, the coast of Antarctica. Along the way, he stopped at a whaling outpost, and the Norwegian whalers who occupied that outpost warned him. They said, listen, we have not seen ice this far north this early in the season in a long time. You shouldn't go. But uh, Shackleton was, was getting antsy. He was excited for this expedition. He had raised millions of dollars in the early 1900s, which was a ridiculous amount of money. And so he pressed on. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, his ship, the Endurance, became stuck fast in the Antarctic pack ice. Now, this is particularly dangerous because the strong winds and the, the ocean currents have a way of compressing the ice, which put a lot of pressure on the wooden hull of his ship. So the men spent several nervous weeks hearing the creaks and groans of their ship under the pressure of the ice. And finally, the ice pushed through the side of the ship and Sir Ernest Shackleton had no choice but to order all abandoned ship. So now here's his crew of 28 men. They're surviving literally on a floating piece of ice in the middle of Antarctica. All they have are a couple reindeer sleeping bags, a few tents, and their three 20-foot lifeboats. Now, these are not fancy boats. These are literally 20-foot wooden open-air boats. For five months, they survived on that ice flow. And Shackleton said something changed in him during that time, where once his goal was, how can I have fame and wealth and power? In fact, he wanted all the rights to this expedition. He told one of the other leaders that they could not write or publish anything about the trip without Shackleton's permission, because he wanted the opportunity to, to profit from this thing. During that time, though, Shackleton said that the, the expedition changed. It was no longer about can we conquer the Antarctic continent. He said, I now had 28 men who I had authority and responsibility for whose lives were dependent on me. And suddenly it was no longer about fame and wealth, but Shackleton in a very real way felt a new sense of responsibility. He had to get these men to freedom. Five months later, the ice began to break up a little bit and they set sail in these rickety 20-foot lifeboats. They sailed over the open southern ocean in the middle of Antarctica where it gets regularly to 10 or 20 below. So like a South Dakota winter, right? They set sail in the open water and they sailed several hundred miles to Elephant Island. There, Shackleton left 22 of his men on that island 
which was uninhabited, and he knew if they stayed there, no ship would pass by. It's not in a shipping lane. He took six men or five men with him, six total, and they sailed several hundred more miles to South Georgia Island back to the Norwegian whaling uh, operation in hopes of finding relief. When they landed on South Georgia Island, they landed on the wrong side of the island, and the, the island of South Georgia is unexplored. All they know is that there's a Norwegian outpost, but there is no map of the island. No one, literally no one has ever crossed the island. And now Shackleton with just some felt boots and a wool cap and two men with him sets off on a trajectory of going over mountains that have never been explored, of crossing glaciers that have never been explored. And it was a heart-wrenching moment of encountering frostbite and nearly giving up. But Shackleton said, the thing that drove me forward was knowing that I had the lives of 28 men who depended on me. For 36 hours, they traversed nearly 40 miles, finally arriving at the Norwegian sailing operation. There they were able to get another boat. They made it back to Elephant Island and rescued all 22 of the men. Later, Shackleton would send a telegram, something to the effect of all 28 lives accounted for. It's it's the kind of survival story that is almost unparalleled. That they should meet such obstacles and not a life should be lost is, is amazing. But I think just as amazing is the transformation that took place in Sir Ernest Shackleton, that he rose to a new way of, of leadership, where once it was about himself, where once it was about uh, how can I make money, how can I profit from this, something changed. And he said, I realized it was more about the men that I was leading. And he said, if not for them, I would have amounted to nothing. And he began to have an other-oriented way of approaching what it means to, to steward authority and responsibility. And I tell you that story because I think his story and the process he goes through is important for us. What I want to challenge us with this morning is to think about how do you steward authority and responsibility? What what does that look like in your life? And for some of us, you might be thinking right now, well, I I don't have a position of, of high authority or high responsibility. But listen, I want you to know that no matter where you're at, God has invested you in different arenas with authority and responsibility. If you are married, if you have a family, you have authority and responsibility to lead and invest in your family. If you have a job, you are called to invest uh, the authority and responsibility at whatever level God has given you in that place. Because listen, the people of God, wherever we are at, we are called to bear witness to the transformative possibilities of God's grace. We are called to be spiritual leaders in whatever context that we're in. The question is not, are we leading or are we being intentional? The question is, how? Because even if you're being passive, even if you're not rising to that moment, you are modeling and leading something even if if it's bad. So here's the big idea that I want us to wrestle with today. Where God has given us authority and responsibility, we are called to lead in selfish and sacrificial ways. You are called to invest in the places right where God has placed you, in the spheres of influence, right where God has you. You are called to invest with relational spiritual intentionality and to steward the authority and responsibility that God has given you in intentional ways. And so as we uh, look at this this morning, as we explore this, I want to look at the example of King David. And King David was one of the Old Testament, the second king of Israel, who was leading in a really difficult time. He took over after King Saul, who was by all accounts, really a terrible leader. And King Saul was a man who led with himself and his best interest at heart. King Saul was a man who at times was incredibly jealous at David. And so when David steps into this position of leadership, he is called to lead in a fundamentally different way. 
The goal is not to just repeat the terrible ways that King Saul has led, but God calls David to something better. Let me read for you how David's leadership is described in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. All the tribes of Israel came to, get, came to David at the town of Hebron, and they said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, this is God's word to David, said, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. But did you notice how David's leadership is described? He's described not in kingly terms, he's described as a shepherd. When God tells David, you will rule over my people, the primary metaphor is he tells David, listen, you are going to be the chief shepherd of my people. And I think when we have in mind the image of the king, not as a a tyrannical ruler, but the king, David, as one who's called to shepherd his people, that gives an entirely different nuance to how David should wield this authority. When you think about what it is to be a shepherd, a shepherd cares for and tends for the flock that's under their care. The shepherd is not to go out into the, the pasture and go, what's best for me today? Right? No, the shepherd goes out into the pasture, into the sphere of influence that he's been given and says, how can I best care for the needs of those who've been entrusted for me? In fact, Jesus himself describes uh, himself as the good shepherd. And that provides for us, I think, the ultimate me- metaphor for what leading in the rhythm and pattern of a shepherd looks like. This is First John, or I'm sorry, Gospel of John, chapter 10, 14. It says this. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Did did you catch what Jesus says? He said, I am the good shepherd. If you want to know what does it look like to steward authority and responsibility in the metaphor of a shepherd in the way that it's supposed to be done, look no further than the example of Jesus. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus served in selfless and sacrificial ways. I think of Philippians 2 where it says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And so what we see in the life of Jesus is that he wielded and stewarded authority and responsibility primarily as a shepherd's servant, not lording it over others, but being willing to serve, even to the point of laying down his life. Pastor Steve Deneff, in his uh, describing this passage, he said this. He said, the shepherd is one who knows, feeds, leads, and protects their sheep. A shepherd knows, feeds, leads, and protects. And I I think in short, simple language, that captures this idea of what shepherd-servant leadership should look like. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at David's life. Because as we look into David's life, we're going to see that King David did not get it right. In fact, this morning, we're going to look at a a particular season in David's life where he got it really wrong. And what I want to do is I want to look at two shortcomings in David's uh, process of learning what it is to be a shepherd king. And I want to take some warnings from his life. And out of that, I want to challenge us to step into the spheres of influence that God has blessed us with and to do so with relational spiritual intentionality. So let's look at the life of King David together. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to break this down into chunks. So remember, David's called to lead as a shepherd king. He's called to steward authority and responsibility. Here's how his leadership begins. 2 Samuel 11, 1. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, 
David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They, they destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Ramah, or Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now let me pause here. I want to look at two significant shortcomings in David's leadership. And the first one is this. David gave way to passivity. Did you, did you notice what the text says? Three times there's this sort of repetition in the text. Number one, we're told this, in the spring, this is the time when kings go off to war. It, it was hard to fight in the winter. Often it would be uh, the, the rainy season in Israel. So either it was muddy or it was just too cold to fight. So springtime was the moment when the king would go back to work, setting up the defenses for his people. Now, in particular, we know that they were fighting the Ammonites and they had been fighting the Ammonites for a while as they were a threat to the welfare and the safety of the people of Israel. In the springtime, what we're told is it was the king's responsibility to lead his people into war. But did you notice what it says? It says that's, that's the job description. The king should be at the forefront leading his army and the welfare and protection of his people. But David instead sends Joab. In other words, instead of doing what David was called to do, he turns to Joab and says, you know what, I'm going to send you. And and the writer of 2 Samuel wants us to get this point so much that at the end of verse 1, he says this, but David remained in Jerusalem. That little word but there is is important. That, That signifies a significant contrast. Kings go off to war, but David remained in Jerusalem. And where David was called to wield and to steward authority and responsibility, David instead chooses passivity. He doesn't rise into that moment. He doesn't step into that role and lead his people in the way that he should have. So here's what I want us to to wrestle with. Here's a key question. Is there a place where you are being passive that God has called you to lead with intentional authority and responsibility? Where are you being passive in a place that God has called you to lead with intentional authority and responsibility? Let me provide some practical examples. Here's the problem, right? These examples of David, they're, they're so extreme that my concern is that we look at those and we go, well, I'm not a king, I'm not David, I can write it off. But I think what happens to David hits home for us because we do it often in lesser ways, but to the same extent. So, so maybe, here's, here's a couple ways. Maybe you work at a job that you just don't like. And right now you spend your days, you go to work, you just cash in your time. Maybe you can't stand your coworkers and you're like, man, I just... I dread working with these people. And so you just, you, you spend your time there as, as least engaged as possible and then you go home. Have you ever thought about, maybe you're in a difficult job, maybe it's not a place that you love, but maybe God has you there intentionally to be a transformative presence in that place? I think everything that God does, he does with intentionality. And if God has you in a place, even if it's difficult, even if it's a place where you're struggling, I think God has you there intentionally. So if you're there and it's a job that you just wrestle with and you you don't like and you're just cashing in your time, I want to encourage you to think about how might you redeem that time? How might you redeem that space and invest in your coworkers, invest in that place with spiritual intentionality? Maybe, maybe some of you, it's you lead really, really well at work. You go to work and you have vision and you have a sense of mission and you pour your energy there and you get home and you're unavailable for your spouse. You're unavailable for your children. You're physically there, but you're mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually disconnected. And it's a place that God has blessed you with and called you to lead with authority and with responsibility and you are letting it give way to passivity. By the way, I think maybe I was being too kind. Another way to describe passivity is maybe disobedience, right? It's a place that God has entrusted you to steward that you're saying, I'd rather not. I'd rather be comfortable than courageous. 
I'd rather do what's convenient rather than what's convictional. And so we let ourselves be passive. The second uh, significant shortcoming I see in David's life is this, where he's called to lead as a shepherd, where he's called to know, feed, lead, and protect his sheep. David instead chooses to wield authority and responsibility for personal gain. Read with me, if you would, 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 5. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now, a side note before we get into this, had David been faithful to his responsibility to lead the armies of Israel, he would have never been in this predicament in the first place. But that one compromise of being passive and sending Joab to lead the army and he staying behind has led him to another second compromising moment. And what we see is that rather than protecting his people, David chooses to take advantage of Bathsheba. Now, the the NIV, I I should have used the ESV because I don't love this translation here, where it says that David sent messengers to get her. The literal translation is they took her. So David is walking on the palace. He sees Bathsheba, sees that she's very beautiful. He sends a messenger. Do you see how it's escalating? He sees her. He sends a messenger to find out about her. And then he takes her into the palace. And this is an utter abuse of David's authority and responsibility where he should have been caring for and investing in and sacrificially serving. He's now taking the wife of another man and using her for himself. And David wields authority and responsibility in a way that is entirely him focused. Now, again, this is an extreme example, right? But I don't want us to lose the significance of how this happens, I think, in ordinary everyday ways in which we still let ourselves be disobedient. Maybe, again, you're the kind of person at work, as a leader, maybe when there's a mistake made, you are quick to pass the buck and blame it on somebody else, or or you are quick to let somebody else take the fall for what happened. Or maybe you approach your marriage this way. You're always frustrated that your spouse is never meeting your needs. You're always thinking about the ways that you resent. If they were only aware of what I need, rather than recognizing that if we're to take the the, the example of Jesus seriously and become in very nature a servant, that your primary responsibility is to serve your spouse rather than asking how they can serve you, maybe that would transform how we do something like marriage. And, And I think in all sorts of little ways, we are tempted to use the authority and the responsibility that God has given us and to use it to serve ourselves rather than to use it to sacrificially and selflessly serve other people. I think this is significant and this is serious. And y'all, I don't have this figured out. I could, I could point to all kinds of ways where I have been annoyed at my wife because she doesn't know that what I need. Why isn't she thinking about me? And in that moment, I realized like, ooh, it's because I'm thinking about me enough for the both of us, Right? So is there an area of authority and responsibility that you were leading out of passivity, being disengaged, 
or leading out of personal gain, of selfishness, where you're saying, how can I come out of this with my own needs met at the expense of other people? And I think in either way, whether it's passivity or whether it's personal gain and selfishness that's driving us, each of those responses, I think, are simply disobedience. And church, I think this is important because God is calling us as believers to wield and to steward authority and responsibility in transformative and redemptive ways so that whether it's a workplace, whether it's a neighborhood, whether it's a family environment, that we can be redemptive and transformative agents of God's grace right in those places. And I think sometimes, by the way, we're passive because we're looking for somebody else to take the responsibility. Right? We can talk about how broken culture is around us and how broken politics are. Listen, it was never the government's job to put people back together. That is the job of the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit as we proclaim the gospel. We are trying to fix spiritual problems with political solutions, and that will never work. But it's up to you and I as the people of God to wield authority and responsibility right in the places where God has us. And I think we need to repent of the sins of passivity and personal gain where it's all come down to what about me? It's come down to our convenience rather than our conviction. Do you hear crickets? It's awful quiet. Let's look at some warnings from David's life because I think we could look at this and say, well, David's the king. He's got all the authority. Maybe David gets away with it. Some warnings from David's life. Let's, let's continue here. Verse six. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And so Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to the house. David was told Uriah did not go down to his home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained at Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him and he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So David puts together this plan to cover his own tracks. He thinks he can handle the consequences of what he's done. He thinks he can uh, uh, architect the perfect cover-up and no one will know. So he thinks, if I bring Uriah home from the battlefield, Uriah will go home, he'll sleep with his wife, and everyone will think that this child that's going to be born belongs to Uriah. It seems like a very simple process. 
The problem is, what David didn't account for is that Uriah shows himself to be a man of conviction and a man of character. And Uriah says, listen, my men that I'm leading are sleeping out in the battlefield. More than that, he says, the Ark of the Covenant, which signifies the presence of God, is out in open country. He goes, how can I go home and have convenience and be with my wife when all of the men that I'm leading and all the places I'm responsible for are under siege and under attack? And so Uriah shows himself to be a man of character and he doesn't do what David invites him to do. Now, let's look at some warnings from David's life. Number one is this. We need to resist the seemingly small compromises. When David goes for an, an evening walk on the palace roof, not a big deal. Right? When you look at it on, on the forefront, going for a walk on the roof of the palace, he's the king. He has every right to do that. The problem was he made a compromise. He was supposed to be in the battlefield leading his men. Now, the second seemingly small compromise is that David sees Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. Now, let me answer this question because you could ask, well, why is she bathing on the rooftop? You have to remember that these are ancient dwellings. They are small. They're not the 2,000, 3,000 square foot home that you're used to. These were small one to maybe two room dwellings. And in that one to two room dwelling, you often had multiple generations. So to have privacy, literally they would bathe on the rooftop because most of the houses were about the same height and that was one of the only places where you might have privacy in your own home. And so David is walking on the rooftop and he sees Bathsheba. Now at this point, David could turn away. He could go back in the palace, but this is his second seemingly small at first compromise. He decides, I- I'm gonna send a messenger to, to find out about her. Then he finds out she's married and he continues to make compromise. Here's the problem. One seemingly small compromise gives way to another, to another, to another. Listen, when we keep moving the boundary, it becomes easy to transgress what before was a convictional standard. Let's not keep moving that boundary one seemingly small compromise at a time. Because listen, David didn't, didn't wake up and think, you know what? Today, I think I'm going to concoct a plan to commit adultery and murder a man, right? But, but here's the thing. The significant places of compromise in our own life, we don't also wake up and put together a whole plan to blow our lives apart. I, I've had the heartbreaking opportunity to sit down across the table from couples where there's been adultery and, and whoever it was that, that did it never woke up and said, today I'm going to blow my world apart. It's one seemingly small compromise after another. It's leading out of passivity. It's leading out of a place of selfishness and personal gain that over time erodes that. And I think a warning that we see in David's life and leadership is avoid seemingly small compromises. The second warning from David's life is this. We need to face the consequences rather than trying to cover them up. But when things go wrong, I think we're so quick to go, uh, how can I get out of this as quickly as possible? How can I cover it up so nobody knows? The problem is when we try to cover it up rather than making it right, it festers into something really, really unhealthy. When David tried to cover it up, right? He thought, well, I'll bring Uriah home. He'll sleep with his wife. No one will know. But it got to the point where David was willing to murder Uriah. I think the character-filled thing to do is to step into those places where we're called to steward authority and responsibility. And when we mess it up, to face the consequences rather than trying to cover it up, to rise into that moment as people of character. Because here's the third warning from David's life is we can't handle the consequences of disobedience. 
And I think what we want to believe is that we can violate the standard of God's word, God's wisdom, and God's ways. And the lie that we believe is, I can handle the consequences. It won't be that bad. But notice what happens in verse 17. It says, when the men of the city that they're besieging came out to fight against Joab, some men in David's army fell. Uriah wasn't the only one that was murdered. David was willing to let many men in his army die rather than face the consequences of what he'd done. He probably never thought when he slept with Bathsheba that it would escalate into numerous men in his own army being killed. And this is the shepherd who was supposed to know, lead, feed, and protect, who's willing to lead them into the slaughter to cover up his own sin. Because he gave way to being passive in his leadership and to leading out of personal gain with his own interest at heart. And, and I think these warnings are important. Don't make small compromises, right? Refuse to believe that you can handle the consequences of disobedience. And when you do encounter the consequences, face them rather than trying to cover them up. So here's our next question is, how, how do we resist? How do we push back against the temptation to passivity and personal gain? How can we safeguard our lives from this? So I, I want to push into this question. The first way I think is this. We need to respond to rebuke with repentance. Now, listen, I'm not telling you that every person who comes to you with a critical word, that's not always rebuke, right? What I have in mind here is people that you trust, people that you're doing life with, people that you know are following Jesus, that are godly people of godly wisdom, when they speak accountability into your life, we need to listen and be receptive and be responsive. Watch what happens to David. This is 1 Samuel uh, chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12. It says, the Lord sent Nathan, this is the prophet of Israel, sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he told David this story. Let me read you this story. He basically tells David a parable to point out David's sin. So Nathan says this in verse one. He says, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew it up with him and his children and it shared his food, it drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, right? So do you have this image? This poor man who can't afford hardly anything manages to buy one ewe lamb. And this ewe lamb, he raises in his own house. He cares for it. He tends for it. It's like a daughter to him. It's one of the man's few possessions. Verse four says, now a traveler came to the rich man who has lots and lots of livestock, right? But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and had prepared it for the man who'd come to visit him. Did you catch what just happened in this parable, this story that Nathan the prophet is telling? This very rich man steals the ewe lamb that belongs to the poor man, slaughters it, and serves it to his guest. Here's the thing. Verse 5, it says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man must die. Here's the problem. When we walk in sin and disobedience, it has a way of darkening our understanding. David doesn't realize that the story that Nathan the prophet just told is about him. David has the audacity to get angry at the story. And he goes, how dare that guy who has everything take the only thing that the poor man had? Why would he do that? And David, is, he says he burned with anger, right? You can just see him livid, like shaking with anger until this moment. Verse seven, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Ooh, right? Whoa, everything changes. David goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
is, is that what I did? And it all becomes clear to him. And here's the thing. David responds, and we'll read more of his response in a moment. David responds to that rebuke with repentance. And it says this in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. We'll push into that more in a second. But I I appreciate David's response. That when he gets it wrong and he's called out, when he's held accountable, he's able to recognize and to respond with repentance. And likewise, in the places where God has called us to wield authority and responsibility, there's times when we've given way to passivity. There's times when we've done it out of selfishness. The difference is that when we're called out in accountability by people who know us and love us and care for us and are walking with Jesus, we need to respond in that moment in repentance and humility. Secondly, I think one of the things that we can do to safeguard ourselves against both passivity and, and leading out of personal gain is this. We need to have persistent trust. And here's what I mean by this. Let me, let me read for you a Psalm of David. This is Psalm 37. Psalm 37 verse 3 says this. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. And notice, by the way, this is a Psalm of David. The same David, right, who took advantage of Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, writes this Psalm. Verse three, I think is significant. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. I think part of the reason that we're giving over to leading out of passivity or for personal gain is because we don't trust that God is good enough. We don't trust that God is sufficient enough. And so when God calls us to a place where we feel overwhelmed, where we feel ill-equipped, when God calls us to a place where we feel tempted to be passive and go, I just don't want to engage, we need to have the courage to trust that if God has called you there, it's with intentionality and it's with purpose. And I think, by the way, sometimes the reason we lead out of personal gain is we think, well, God's not providing for me, so I'll take it upon myself. And David says, trust in the Lord, catch this, and do good. By doing good, David doesn't just mean do good deeds. He means walk in the way of righteousness. When, when God describes something as good, it means that it aligns with his character. And notice what David says in, at the end of verse three. He says, dwell in the land. Sometimes when we're tempted to be passive, we want to flee something that God has called us to. And that call to dwell in the place where God has you is significant. Maybe it's that job that you hate and you've been praying that God would open a door and a door doesn't open and you're going, why am I still here? And for whatever reason, I I don't have the answer for you, but for whatever reason, God has called you for a season to dwell in that place. The question is, are you actually dwelling there? Are you committing to do good, to live and lead in that place in a way that aligns with the truth and with the character of God's word? Notice what David says then in verse four. He says, "Take, take delight in the Lord. What do you take delight in? Where do you find meaning and purpose and significance and fulfillment? I often find that I lead most selfishly when I'm trying to power my way to the things that I think will fulfill me and complete me. But when in a moment of surrender, we can say, Jesus, I recognize that my only delight is found in you, that you were the one who brings fullness and completeness and sufficiency, that as scripture says in, in the gospel of John, that Jesus came, that we might have life and have it to the full. Do you believe that the fullness of life is actually found in relationship with him, that he's enough? And then David says this in verse five, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him. 
And committing your way to God, I, I find that so difficult sometimes. There's so many times that I just think, God, I'd rather just take my plan into my own hands. And you, you know what? Like, I'll be honest too, like the last year and a half, I, I can't tell you that I really enjoyed ministry during the pandemic. And there was a part of me that said, God, can I, can I be done? I'd rather not dwell here. I'd rather run the other way. And I wrestled with Psalm 37. Commit your way to the Lord and trust in him. And it was one of those moments where God said, can you commit your way to me? Will you trust me? And some days I said yes, and some days I was like, I don't, I don't know if I do today. But what I know is if we commit our way to the Lord and trust in him, right, God meets us in that place. And in the moments where we mess it up, in the moments where we get it wrong, because here's the thing. Yeah, David messed it way up, right? David took these examples of passivity and personal gain to the way extreme. But here's the reality. We do similar things in, in probably far less examples. Hope isn't over for us in those moments, right? If we can respond in repentance and surrender, God can redeem those moments. So let me, let me read for you David's prayerful response because I think he, he, here's where we're at, right? So if we find ourselves leading out of passivity, if we find ourselves leading out of a place where we've pursued our own interest, where do we go from there? Listen to what David says in Psalm 51. This is the prayerful response because here's the reality. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, is that you are not called to produce good things in yourself, but you are called to yield to the transformative possibilities of God's grace. I, in my sinful brokenness, am way too selfish and self-oriented to lead in a, a sacrificial servant-oriented way. But God doesn't call me to do it on my own strength. Let me read for you David's prayerful response in Psalm 51. By the way, if you read Psalm 51, you'll notice the note at the top of it says this. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. David literally wrote this psalm as a prayer of repentance after that moment. Let me read part of this for you. Psalm 51.1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. Listen, if you find yourself in that place where you've been leading out of passivity or for your own personal interest, I think what we can do is this. Trust yourself to God's mercy. As I was reading David's account with Bathsheba again, honestly, I wrestled with 1 Samuel 12 or 2 Samuel 12, 13, where Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. Part of me was like, David committed adultery. He murdered multiple people and God just forgives him. And here's the thing. I wrestle with the beauty of God's mercy and grace when I see it in David's life here. But the reality is we all need the abundant mercy and grace of Jesus because we all have our own shortcomings and failings. And all I know how to do is to trust myself to God's mercy. And notice what David says then in, in verse two. He says, wash away my iniquity and cleanse me. So he trusts himself to God's mercy and he asks God to forgive him. 
But then look at what he says in verse 10. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. That steadfast spirit is one that holds steadfastly to God's word and God's truth and God's ways. And so David says, God, not only would you forgive me, but would you transform me? Would you do something new in me? Would you create in me a clean heart? Listen, you can't create a new heart in you. I can't create a new heart in me. Only God can do that by the grace of Jesus Christ because of his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. And listen to what David says. He says, don't cast me from your presence, verse 11, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So then David asks, God, would you restore a right spirit within me? And notice what it says. Would you grant me a willing spirit to sustain me? Listen, that place where you are wrestling and leading with passivity, you just don't want to engage. You'd rather run from it. Notice what David says that the willing spirit that he's asking for from God is what sustains him. You don't have to sustain yourself on your own strength. But I think like David, it's this prayerful response that comes back to a place of saying, God, would you create in me a right heart? Would you restore a steadfast spirit within me? Would you be the one that sustains me? And then look what happens in verse 13. David says, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. And at the end of that prayer, David says, I want to become a redemptive presence for others. He says, then I will go and teach transgressors your ways. And church, here's why it matters. You and I are called to have a redemptive presence right in the place where God has you. So I I want you to think about this week, that place that you normally step into with passivity, the place that you'd rather run from. Maybe it's a, a prayerful moment to say, God, would you restore a right spirit within me? Would you sustain me? Would you create in me a new heart that I can have a transformative, redemptive presence in that place? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the example of someone like David. Um, God, I think we're each aware of our own shortcomings because we've lived them and we've experienced them intimately. And yet when we look at David's life, we see an example today in 2 Samuel 11 where he just, he missed it. He got it so wrong. And yet on the other side of everything that David did wrong, he was met by your grace and by your mercy and by your compassion. And so God, I pray today, would you forgive us for the places that you've called us to lead in, that we've been passive in? God, would you forgive us for the places that you've called us to have a redemptive presence in when all we've been worried about is our own personal gain? God, would you create in us something new, a new heart? Would you restore in us a willing spirit that sustains us, that God, we can lead in our families, we can lead in our neighborhood, we can lead in our workplaces in a way that points people to you, in a way that draws people back to your grace and to your truth and to your love, Jesus. And we fully admit and confess freely that we can't do this on our own. We need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. So God, would you meet us here and would you empower us to lead in the way of a shepherd? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.